0: This is Dr. Lynn McPherson and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD and Graduate Certificate program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in palliative care offered by the University of Maryland Baltimore. Welcome
1: everyone, we are so pleased that you're joining us for another of the University of Maryland's PhD programs podcasts, where we're really looking at the whole field of hospice and palliative care. My name is Connie Dolan, and as you know, I'm one of your faculty for the PhD program, and I'm joined by Dr. Lynn McPherson, who is the director of the palliative care program at the University of Maryland. We are very thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Inga Corliss, and I have had the pleasure of knowing Dr. Corliss for many years. Um, She is a professor of nursing at the MGH Institute of Health Professions Um, but she's had a long history and when we've talked about um, people coming into the field from different ways, um, Dr. Corliss has done so much work in HIV and AIDS and looking at grief and bereavement. She's been one of the founding members of the International Work Group on Death and grief and bereavement Um, she has been working really as an international expert in hospice and palliative care um, in internationally um, as well as really looking at um, nursing research in terms of thinking about how to care for people who are hiv infected Um, she's had numerous awards in terms of being inducted into the international nurse researcher hall of fame and Sigma Theta Tau International. Um, She's a member of the American Academy of Nursing. Um, And she's also been um, a president of the um, Association of Nurses in AIDS Care. So there's just sort of a wealth of knowledge that we are so thrilled to kind of bring that perspective of again, our birth um, to where we are now. So welcome.
2: Thank you so much. I'm so pleased. I'm delighted about what you're doing at the University of Maryland. Kudos. Thank you. Thank you. So, Dr. Corliss, you know,
1: I kind of gave um, a very short version of really all your accomplishments. And, you know, I know that you have really influenced so many people and, particularly, a lot of nurses. in care, but, you know, talk to us a little bit about, you know, your uh, getting involved in, in uh, hospice and palliative
2: care and your sort of passion around it. Uh, perhaps not like, unlike many people, uh, I had experienced death and dying in my own family. My mother was very ill when I was uh, my early teens and, I was the one who was assigned uh, to providing her with her medication, and it was injections. And I was taught how to do injections, and I would do them, you know, I think I did them every other day. We had a a system where I did it every other day, and we had somebody from the outside come in to do it on a daily basis. Uh, I think that's what made me curious about it. I don't know what prompted me. When I was at the University of Michigan to begin to study hospice programs in the United States, um, I I did write to all the different programs and look at what was happening and how it was developing and what the components were. Um, I I think there may have been some. Uh, I'm trying to think whose lectures I might have gone to that made me curious about what it was that was going on, but I decided I wanted to get a broader perspective uh, of what was going on. And I also went to a meeting, I'm trying to th- think who it was, oh, I'm blocking on her name, I'll, I'll think of her name afterwards, I'm sure, um, who was doing a lot of work in death and dying and talking about a lot of work and death and dying, but not doing hospice programs per se. Excuse me? No, go ahead. I was back, I heard some background noise, I didn't know if you wanted to interject something. Um, But I, back in 1970, would you believe 1978 was when I conducted that study and in 1979 I was invited to a meeting of the international work group on death, dying, and bereavement uh, in Canada. As a matter of fact, and after I you you go to a meeting and people decide whether you would become a valuable member. And I, I think it was the same year that Steve Connor was in, uh, also there the, for the first time. We discovered that, and I was inducted into the into IWG. Um, that same year I had met a physician who was interested in developing um, a hospice program in Albany, New York at St. Peter's Hospice. It, as, at St. Peter's Hospital. It became St. Peter's Hospice. And what I liked about it was that it was not only inpatient care, it was also home care. And so that we were seeing people in their own home settings, which is important uh, for those people who are able to manage that and have the family and support necessary to manage that. And we also had the home care and we had bereavement care. So we looked, did some work after the with the family after the uh, patient had died. Um, I also agreed at that time to participate in a study where it was being done by Brown University. And it was a study, they were looking at these new hospice programs and it was Vince Moore who, who did that study. Um, and they knew I was a PhD from Brown. Somehow they worked that out. and, and How could I say no? Mm-hmm. And so I uh, we were, uh, a one of the programs that we were control for the programs they were looking at. Um, And then I became, while I was at Michigan, uh, where I did the study, I also went to um, meetings of the nascent um, state nurses, a state hospice association. I'm so accustomed to saying nurses, but it was a state hospice association and saw what they were doing uh, and was very impressed with what they were doing. So when I moved to New York to be the hospice program director, um, I uh, got involved in the New York State Hospice Association, which was really just starting. So I was able to provide, they were very interested in what I had learned you know, at Michigan and what they were doing. And so became involved right away with the New York State Hospice Association. Uh, And I was active in attending meetings in Washington, um, D.C. when we were getting to the point of doing the hospice legislation, but that was a little bit later. But it was interesting to, you know, and I reviewed, you know, the, the research background is really very, very helpful because you, you learn how to read things in a different way than you might've read them before you had that background. Um, this may be a plug for your program, but it's, it's really a plug for uh, you know, doctoral study. You know, I could see where the problems would be because they were very, very clear, became very clear that the, what they wanted to do was to make sure that if you got payment for a hospice program, you can't get payment for anything else. You could get payment for if you fractured your, your, your knee, if there was a fall and you fractured your knee, but was not associated with hospice care. You know, it was independent of that. You might get reimbursement. But otherwise, there would be no reimbursement. You had to choose one or the other. And you had to forego your regular uh, payments of insurance if you chose hospice. So I, I saw that immediately as a problem. Not for the government, for the individual. And, the well, first- and I
1: think that's important for people to, to understand because I think we, we, talk about it, how novel it was considering that it happened in the Reagan era and that when you thought about a per diem per rate, you know, that was a novel thing. I think what people have looked about, of, you know, this is a great service, but I think you're really the first person to articulate um, this financial part where the government was sort of saying, okay, if you're going to say you want this, then that's all you get. You don't get to kind of have that. So it's, it's no, no mixing, it's you have one or the other. And um, I, you know, I think sometimes we have continued to have the discussion, um, because since we're the only country that has done that, um, and may in what that has meant about hospice development here, and thinking about death and dying, you know, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Because I think sometimes other countries just think we're crazy, um, because we have such a delineation, but yet we have to, because of our Insurance, whereas in other countries there's this real sliding of palliative care and hospice and and that. So I don't, you know, know if you have other comments or thoughts about that.
2: No, what my thoughts are when you were speaking was to think about okay, what are we doing in terms of palliative? I'm jumping to palliative care and the way we're now defining palliative care. I mean, the term palliative care started with Val Mount uh, in Montreal, and he used that term because hospice somehow didn't translate well into French. And, you know, this is Montreal, Quebec and everyone spoke French. And, uh, you know, a petit pur for for me, but anyway, uh, (laughs) most people spoke English in the hospice as well.
1: So when you, um, I mean, but when you think about that and you think about then the development of palliative care, you know, what are your thoughts about Did you sort of think then that was naturally gonna happen because people were having to make this difficult choice and people don't like to, well, you know, in American culture, people like to always have all the choices. They don't wanna have to be, um, have one delineated for them.
2: Well, I just reviewed a paper for a a journal and I had to ask, they use the term palliative care and I had to ask in the review, how are you using this term? Mm-hmm. Are you using it as an alternate term for hospice, or are you using it in terms of palliative care? Is something we we provide all the way along when there's a serious life-threatening uh, illness? My my glasses keep sliding. <laughs> I've been using two, you know you use a mask and all everything gets sort of wider. <laughs> anyway. uh, yeah, I it isn't clear how we're doing it. I'm not sure how palliative care is being paid for. Is it a palliative care with a small p or is it palliative care with a capital P? The capital P being the alternate to hospice and the small p being, you know, this sort of uh, symptom management that we've always wanted to provide, but really looking more globally at the individual, all of the psychosocial issues and some of the family issues. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, and I think, you know, knowing the work that you've done in HIV, I mean, I, I think you bring up a great point, right? Of the little p, That people say, well, this is palliative chemotherapy, or I was thinking, you know, the other day of, um, you know, with AIDS care, that was so hard for hospices because the medications were more expensive, and you had hospices deciding which medications were palliative or not, which you know, having taken care of some of these patients, which I know you have at that point, the way that HIV was like these were really sick people and they had a lot of symptoms mm-hmm. and sort of this people who had no experience with HIV, deciding which of those medications were small P and which were big P. Was, um, I think about it now, and I'm like, that was just insane, right? I mean, you know, if we had somebody like Dr. Fauci telling us that, that would be a whole different thing, but I think that was, you know, probably one of, in my mind, one of the first times of a, not only the HIV crisis, but a crisis for hospices, because if they were going to say, anybody with a terminal illness, here they get this group of people who are really sick, and oh, by the way, they're younger, and oh, by the way, they have a lot of medications, but then you're going to say, oh, well, no, 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 we're not gonna do it for that group. Um, so it set up a very interesting dynamic.
2: I wanna be sure to mention again, Balmount uh, because he's been an incredible figure. Um, and it's, it's, you know, he's a physician. He's been an incredible figure in early hospice that I want people to know about. Um, I had the opportunity as it did others, you have to apply but I had the opportunity to spend uh, a month at, in Quebec, uh, Quebec at the Royal Vic. And it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, experience. Yeah. I was looking at what they were doing in terms of care and their administrative process. They were very interested in what I was going to be doing in terms of home care in, at St. Peter's. So it was really a, a wonderful experience, I think, I hope all around, Um, but Belmont by having that internship program, that was very, very helpful. You know, not every, you know, I I certainly knew Cecily Saunders, who needs to be mentioned as well. Uh, I'm sure that others have mentioned her, uh, just a very impressive woman. Her situation, you know, at the uh, St. Christopher's Hospice was just, Amazing, amazing to say the least. Um, and, I mean, she she knew every, well, everyone knew her and she knew a, a lot of the, the people who were involved in hospice because she was also a member of the International Work Group on Death, Dying and Bereavement. Um, so being part of different organizations and Was important. The other person I want to be sure to mention is Florence Wald. I don't know whether anyone else has mentioned her before, but she was dean at the Yale School of Nursing and really was very uh, one of the founders as well of hospice in the US. She founded the Connecticut Hospice in um, what was close to uh, New Haven. Anyway, and one of the first inpatient hospices that, she, you know, when it was built, it was really very impressive to see what she was trying to do because she was trying to make sure that everyone had, you know, an opportunity to be outside. At St. Peter's Hospice, we were up on sixth, seventh floor. It was very hard to be outside. You could sort of see through the windows and open, you know, we did some things with windows, Uh, but also protection um, with the windows, meaning you don't want someone to suddenly, you know, go out the window or fall out the window or something like that. That's what I meant by protection. Uh, But she was down, her hospice was on the ground. And so people could go outside on a little, into a little patio right outside their door of their hospice room which I thought was really very, very creative in terms of the the architecture that was done there. Uh, well, this- and
1: she also had a, um, uh, so that was one of my um, assignments. Um, um, so um, actually Dr. Corliss and I had a colleague, uh, Dr. Sylvia Drake-Page who um, taught a death grief and course that I had to take in school. And so I had a year long hospice and we were required to go to see Connecticut hospice in Branford. And I just remember that the beauty of it was that um, not only were they able to go outside, but there was a children's center underneath because they wanted people to hear the circle of life and to hear these children playing in terms of being like that. And so I think you're right. you know, These people who are thinking yeah. not only of the physical care, but this whole um, the circle of life and, and sort of thinking, yep, you may be really sick and there's still joy in the world.
2: And Florence's husband, Henry, was also very, very involved with that and also so supportive uh, of Florence. So it, it was really the two of them working on it, but led by, certainly led by Florence, who also looked at, later looked at issues in terms of being incarcerated and did a lot of work on that. Um, which was impressive. And, you know,
1: um, Dr. Kolaris, that's sort of interesting because I think, um, you know, I know that um, Dr. Wald did a lot of work on that. I know that Dr. Kubler-Ross was sort of thinking about children and some of that, and it sort of felt like that got done. And then that population kind of got marginalized again. There was the Angola Project, and it sort of feels like it's kind of starting to have some um Attention again, but I you know that's an interesting kind of sociological piece about what happened in the intervening years. Did people decide this wasn't important or in the scheme of things? I don't know.
2: Well, Ross um, ended up moving around a bit, you know and in terms of her where she was located, she was um, in the South and then she was in the West. I saw her in she was living in. A trailer in the West when I visited her. You know, we had met earlier and um, saw each other occasionally on on meetings. Uh, she was the me- she was the person who led that meeting back in '79 that I attended. That I was in a very impressed with what she was doing, mm. and that's where I met um, Michael Murphy, the physician, who uh, was also interested in, and invited me to join him in. Uh, Troy, New York at uh, St. Peter's.
1: Well, it sounds like, I mean, you know, when you think about who you had mentoring and guidance from, you were having this guidance from the stars, right? These were the people who were really in the middle, the movers and the shakers. And I I mean, I have to believe that it was really exciting to be in meetings just where people were thinking and trying to put this together and, you know, what does conceptually mean, but then what do you do when you are um, you know, actually going to try to uh, translate it into practice and what is excellent care. Yeah.
2: And other person I should mention, I'm, I'm not name dropping in. No, no,
1: this is really helpful for our students to know. We're going to be having them read about these. So I, I want to say to our students who are watching this, like, this is what you're reading about. This is really, this is like history in the making of somebody who's been part of it, which is just really a thrill.
2: Mary Vachon, whom I heard, gave a lecture when I was on faculty at the University of Michigan. Uh, Mind you, I left Michigan to start. It was a choice of stay at Michigan or start the hospice program. So I decided to start to work on developing the hospice program uh, because instead of just writing about it, I wanted to do it. Hmm. Uh, But I heard Mary uh, Vachon and we clicked right away Um, and she was very, she was the one who told me about more about Mount and the program there and supported my going there for a month, uh, to see firsthand what it was they were doing. Mm. Um, and she's still, she is still active in her own practice now in counseling. She's been very, very impressive and her name should have come up if it hasn't, uh, she's been very impressive over the years. And uh, I think just a major influence, certainly in the early days. And then, you know, as I said, she's continuing her uh, practice, her psychosocial practice.
1: And she really, um, for the students watching, um, she really also, has been focused on um, caring, particularly for nurses, caring for themselves, um, that this is emotional work and that you can't be effective unless you take care of yourself so really early about um, well being and resiliency. Um, and I think the other part about in my mind, uh, particularly because I think sometimes people are drawn to hospice, people have had experiences and that can help their practice. I also think there are people who have come to it trying to work out their own things. So she was really good about sort of saying, you need to kind of be aware of yourself because it's not for the patient to heal you. You need to heal yourself, um, but you need to be aware about what, what the environment that you're going to be working in. Um,
2: so when you think, go ahead. She was one of the early ones to talk about that.
1: Right, yeah. Um, So when you sort of think about, so we've kind of passed through and then we had the AIDS crisis and you started doing all that work. You know, were there things that you felt like you'd learned early on that you could bring to that work to make it richer or were you sort of feeling like um, this is a population that is so important for us that's gonna kind of be an indicator for how we're gonna be able to move forward with non-cancer diagnoses?
2: I actually, when I started doing the work and it was research that I was doing when I was at, I was uh, doing a postdoc at the University of California, San Francisco. And I had done work with Dolores Krieger. I don't know if that name is familiar to you, but it, it, you're shaking your head. Sorry. I am, but
1: I, but I might've, because of where my studies have been nowhere. Le- Dr. McPherson may not know who that is. And our students may not know. So please give an explanation.
2: Well, she was one of the people who really uh, originated, I think, therapeutic touch. And Therapeutic touch is something you do, you don't actually touch the individual. We feel that, you know, we extend in some ways beyond our, our body in terms of the energy that's beyond our body. And I was looking at a lot of information on relaxation and then did the courses both with her I did went through all the different courses there were three courses we had to take to uh, complete the our training in therapeutic touch and and she and I communicated for a period of time afterwards Uh, and but I wanted to use it at the time I was at UCSF we didn't yet have any treatment for AIDS. So that gives you an idea of how long ago that was. Uh, We had no treatment at all. And I thought, well, if it's the immune system, what can we do to quiet the immune system? How can we just sort of try to bring it down a little bit? And I thought about relaxation therapy and therapeutic touch and so developed an intervention that I used um, with these individuals, and I actually did the research and reported it at the it was the third meeting of the international AIDS conference, where I saw Anthony Fauci. You know, <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> at the time, he was carrying a, a little baby boy in his arms. You know. And I've subsequently seen him, and he said that little baby boy is grown up now. <laughs> After all the years that have passed since then, and in terms of the work we've done, um, it was wonderful. I also developed uh, audio tapes and, and subsequently, videotapes on relaxation and thinking about it for other situations, such as. Uh, bone marrow transplants at the time were really isolated into a room and everyone and spent so much time alone. And I thought, well, how can we use that to empower people to where they have a role in they're not just sitting back, they have a role in their own um, well-being. And so I had proposed that for uh, a study on bone marrow transplants. But back to, to HIV, Uh, As I said, I developed a tape that they could play uh, in the morning and the evening, or more if they prefer, uh, a relaxation tape to help them that they could use at home. And in between the times they came to see me in the office, and one of the things I had them do was draw a picture of themselves. And then, you know, everyone would say, as I would say as well, I don't know how to draw but drawing the picture i then asked the individual to tell me about their picture and telling me about their picture is telling me about what's going on in their lives which is what i wanted to get a sense of because they could it's easier to talk about that person in the in the picture than perhaps than talk about themselves so it's something i'm i mention it now because i think it's it's um, a very good modality and I've never discarded those pictures. Mm-hmm. And I, I may do something with them yet because I think they were really very, very special with obviously without the names, but I think it is very special way of examining what's going on because you have a whole series of pictures of how the person is feeling. Mm-hmm you know, we do it with words, but it's not the same.
1: Right, no, I think, I mean, I think that, you know, that's kind of beautiful and in some ways it's, um, um for, for anybody, for family members, you know, it would also be an interesting part of them kind of having that piece of that, right? Um, so when you think about where we, where, I mean, and you've continued to teach at the institute, you know, for the last twenty years or so, and have had multi <laughs> students. For those people who don't know, the MGH Institute started off with uh, part of MGH as a diploma nursing, and then it moved and was one of the first progressive programs in the United States that did um, um, uh, entry level as a master's to nursing, and then. Um, Um, then expanded to have a lot more disciplines. And so you've taught, you know, physical therapists, you've taught nurses, you've taught PAs, you've taught speech and language pathologists, occupational therapists. Um, So, I mean, I have to believe that that makes you feel uh, hopeful for the future and that you've been able to impart this knowledge about hospice and palliative care. But what are some of the messages that you feel like your students need to know now?
2: You know, when I was thinking about this um, morning, it occurred to me, I don't think we ever anticipated the pandemic. You know, you know, even Ebola was over there. Mm-hmm. It wasn't here. And the pandemic now is very much here. And there's so much work that needs to be done. I don't think we've really yet you know done anything about all the people who have lost loved ones because of the pandemic you know all the deaths that have occurred because of this pandemic we see the numbers but they're just numbers these are people every one of those ciphers is a person who has a family who was cared for by one or more people you know cared about for one or more people What about their grieving process? What are they taking with them? What sort of support have we provided? Um, One of the things that I'm I'm still running something called the HOPE Nursing Conference. I do that once a month, I'm the moderator. And I brought in um, a woman who is key in Ireland to developing what they have in Ireland is whenever anyone dies, they do an estimate of how much and support they may require. You know, they take a look at the situation and do an estimate of how much bereavement support they may require. Um, if you, if this is a death that was anticipated, if this is a person who is well into their seniority. I'm not defining what seniority is anymore but well into their seniority and uh, has lived you know the life they have wanted to live there may be less you know need for support than there is for someone where it's a death through violence uh, a death um, unanticipated a death for a younger person with COVID all of these things might make a difference um, in terms of the needs for grieving, and what they're doing in Ireland is assessing that. In Canada, they're also looking at that. How can they do that for Canada? You know, Ireland is a little bit more self-contained in terms of the population, but how do you do that in a major country like our, uh, Canada? And they're looking at that. You know. Uh, Susan Cadell and uh, Mary Mary Ellen McDonald are looking at that in uh, Canada. And I don't think it's anything we've we have discussed yet, and I wonder whether any of your uh, participants for this these podcasts have mentioned that to you.
1: No, they haven't. But I think that that's also really important for us to have, you know, we know that our students are gonna be thinking about different areas. And I think what you're speaking to is, is you know, I think sometimes we think about, you know, pain and symptom management. We think about some of the, but I think you're really speaking to this loss, grief, and bereavement, um, not only in how to identify people. So thinking about the assessment piece that you're talking about, but I think the other part um, is, you know, and I know that we've had conversations before of this recognition by some of our population, but not by all of um, our United States doesn't like to look at grief and bereavement um, as a psychological issue. And yet we know when we're looking at people's health care that a lot of people's health issues are based in a lot of grief and bereavement part that they cannot address and so, and so they cannot address it that way then it actually manifests itself in a physical realm and we have yet to address that in this country of really looking at prior to the pandemic um, what lost grief and bereavement does and the financial implications sometimes as you know that gets intention when we put dollars to it I don't like that but You know the reality of it, and then so what is this going to do? And I I think um, you know people are so anxious to kind of go back to normal. But I think all of us in this right now on this call would say we're not going back to a normal. That normal is gone. So whatever we're coming to, we don't know what it is. And I think people are are anxious. But that, how do we even measure that? Because I think Inga, your comment about. When it looks like there's a I can't remember the saying, but when it's a st- statistic like that and the number goes up, it depersonalizes it and yet every one of those was in it, what you're saying an individual experience. Um, and I think that's really important for us to remember.
2: And some of the TV programs, CNN for a while would would make that more palpable mm-hmm. by showing someone, talking about someone who had died, about that person who had died, so that it wasn't just a number. These are individuals with family members and friends um, who care and who have experienced the loss of that person in their lives in a very palpable way, although that person will always be in their lives you know, just as you know, people that we've known who have died. You know, Florence oh. Wald will always be in my life. You know, uh, she was just a remarkable woman who actually uh, you know, came up here. And when Cecily, she and Cecily Saunders, came, when I was living over in my other apartment, came to my apartment to, um, and we had uh, just a small gathering there when. Cecily was in in Boston, mm-hmm. so it was just, um, it was just a remarkable time. And then what we we have lost in the, during this pandemic, being together in those sorts of ways that we even well, a lot of people think about traveling. I think about traveling, I, but it's you know it's all a very different environment that we have now. And you're right to think about what's what is it going to be like in the future? And what is it going to mean uh, to provide palliative care and be aware of as we have in the past with our rituals, various rituals uh, that there is a grieving period, things that we haven't been able to do, but I'm trying to think of, I was thinking of something else. I should have written it down uh, when you were speaking, but uh, it provoked some other thoughts of what's going on and how we're, we're going to be able to provide this sort of care. Oh yes, I do. One of the things I wanna be sure that the students understand is, it's not all giving on your part and when you're involved in this. Um, I received a lot of gifts. I don't mean that tangible gifts. I mean the gifts of people sharing with me you know one gentleman was his um he had uh spent time in the antarctic and he had his wife bring in pictures for me to see of him and his time in the antarctic that was a gift i mean i i didn't they weren't for me to keep but you wanted to show me the pictures but the fact that he did that was a you know it was a gift there were other gifts you know uh, a woman who I was uh, a consult for and came in to see her and she said you know you look tired you need to get more sleep (laughs) and I thought that was that was just what a gift you know she was letting me know she was a wonderful woman whom I enjoyed thoroughly and uh seeing her and trying to be helpful to her. But it's a reciprocal process. Our patients and their families give us gifts as well. Those are, I have many more examples. Oh, one of my, I have to tell you, one of my people I saw at Mass Mass General and I would go around and I would do my rounds earlier in the morning. And um, he, Teased me about the fact that, you know, I was always there before breakfast with him, you know, and it was, he was just having some fun with me. He was a younger person who was seriously, seriously you know, ill. And he, and then he died during that hospitalization. But the fact that we could have some fun together, that he could tease me and I could, in indicate that I enjoy the, the teasing and the, the humor. That's so important, you know, We yeah. bring that, that's a part of being human. And it's, we need to remember our humanity as we do this.
1: No, so I, you know, I think of the, of just all the different experiences and things that you've had with all the different people. Um, I wonder what you think about when you look over You know, you were there before the benefit, but sort of the evolution process, the benefit, AIDS care, kind of thinking about this international work where we are now. What are some of the things that you think that, you know, a PhD student who's going to be a leader by doing the PhD, but also is an interest, what are some of the things that they need to kind of remember or kind of take with them as they kind of step into the next role that you feel like we didn't either get right or, you know you need to hold on to this
2: do the research (laughs) yeah do the research get the data you know uh unless you're someone who's well known and has a reputation already like dr fauci he can just speak but the rest of us need to show you know what's the data what have we found that supports what it is, and it may be data that somebody else has done, but be sure that it's fairly recent, depending upon what what you're arguing. Um, I I I'm surrounded by all sorts of articles that I that I've written on just a variety of subjects, but they all come back to death and dying, loss. Um, and life and living hmm. uh, my most recent work where now we're waiting to hear from the publisher on a paper on caring i'm very interested in caring um and what that means and that is so central to this uh-huh. and of life care
1: well it's so also timely because um the american nurses association just updated their um Scope and standards, and they their definition, and they have been very deliberate about putting caring in it, um, and then this whole advocacy piece. Um, so I, you know, I think that's fascinating. Absolutely,
2: Absolutely. we're the voice. Of, I think you're so right. Advocacy is so important, um, so that our patients and our families get what they need. The other thing I think is important is. Um, treating people as persons. I got that. I, I wrote something up. I, I think it will it's, it will be published in uh, the state newsletter. Um, but I think treating people as, as persons. When we just recently had a salute to nurses and in that salute to nurses, I was really curious to see who was writing and What were they saying? So I'm just, I've now collected the data on what was there. I'm just using what's in the newspaper on the salute to nurses. And I'm just using the ones right now that patients have written. And what is it that they find valuable? Is it what we do in terms of actions like you know, making them comfortable in their bed. I'm just being very, or one person wrote about the fact that this, uh, the nurse always got the contacts that this person needed to be able to go forward in terms of their uh, care. But is it the activity or is it something about the, the individual themselves. Mm-hmm. So I'm that You know, there's always interesting questions to ask, you know, and we talk about nursing and I, I would always think about it. It isn't just, it is what we do, but I think it's also how we do it that makes the difference.
1: Which I think is for, you know, all of the disciplines, right? I mean, we all can have a task part, but if we just do tasks, we could be a robot. And so it is the personality behind the action. Um,
2: And how we do it. It's how we interact with with a person, Mm -hmm. how we help them prepare for discharge, how we answer their questions when they're concerned about what they need to do, you know, rather than just doing it. What I'm concerned about in nursing is that we're just running around. We have all these tasks that we have to do. And I understand that they have to be done, but it's still how we do them and how we interact with our patients. Um, I had a relative who was in the, in the hospital and who was given a, a nice warm breakfast after having been in overnight and five different professionals came in, did what they had to do, which interrupted her from eating her breakfast. And by the time they were finished, the breakfast was cold. And I thought, what's wrong with this picture? You know, we're looking at our time and not the patient's time and what they need for themselves. And, you know, having um, a good breakfast, you know, we all would urge that, nutritionists among us most of all. And yet, you know, we organize our time in ways that Meets our needs, but not necessarily the patient's needs. So I would like people to be more concerned about that. I think that's
1: been a theme, you know, that I think a lot of, um, because I think that you know when you look back at. The '60s and '70s, where we moved care to the hospital, it was for our convenience, and I still maintain that when it's easy for us, it means it's hard for the patient. Um, you know that we don't have more evening hours, that we don't do more um, weekends, and because that's when the crises happen, right? Um, and the families and having to take work. And so it's been interesting because I think people say that's wrong, but if you think about a changing society, people this. Nine to five or seven to three is this artificial thing that we did based on the workings of a hospital. So you have pharmacists, PT, everybody, you know, you have a shift from seven to three, whatever. That's kind of taking from um, factory work, right? Where that was the time shift and, you know, thinking about that. So I think you're right about how do we teach that. And I think that's my thought about, you know, when you have this intergenerational part, um, those of us who are older in practice, we had to learn communication skills before we learned the tasks, right? But now we have this younger population that has grown up with technology, which is great, and they're very good at it. I think the flip side is sometimes their comfort with the face-to-face communication, which is what you need in healthcare, right? You can't You can do some telehealth and I think that that's a really added benefit, but it's still meaning you're communicating with somebody and not just texting right. Um, That's a scarier process for them. And I remember, you know, when I used to have students um, that I would mentor or precept from the institute, I did the um biobehavior principles class and I would have, you know, groups of students and first when they got assigned to me as palliative care, they would always say, I'm in the wrong practicum. And I'm like, no, no, you're in the right place. Don't worry. We're gonna focus on communication. But But my whole point was to have them go interview patients together, right? So that they know, because they would say, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. I'm like, no, I actually know what dying looks like. You're not going to die interviewing a patient, but you do need to go in there and learn this art, if you will, of understanding their story. And I think for some people, for a younger generation, that connection is the one that is harder for them they can do all the technology and do all the other stuff but that personal part uh, is just a different skill that they're not taught even going through high school and all of that everything is you know done group work doodle that you don't have to have a meeting about
2: We should be asking what are my needs but most importantly when we're with patients what are my patients needs
1: right yeah
2: and then both. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pay attention to needs to get things done, needs to, for rest and relaxation, or any of that for the caregiver. You know, clearly very, very important. But when we're with a patient, what are their needs, and how do we structure things so their needs are met? Yeah.
1: yeah. When you think about. Um, So going forward in the future others.
2: I hate to do this to you. May I just sure.
1: So I know um, we've had a lovely time with you, Dr. Corliss, and I just as our last question to you just wonder, since these are PhD students, um, you know, you've said research and data. Are there any other areas that you think right now are needed for them to focus on for research?
2: on research. I think I've mentioned the aftermath of the pandemic, right? And that aftermath is not just in the United States. What's the aftermath in other countries? Mm-hmm. What's the difference between our having a vaccine? that some people want and some people don't. And some countries without a vaccine, what difference has that made? For a while, we thought there was less um, death in some countries in Africa. Uh, Why is that the case? What is it about that environment that may have led to less death? Is there an undiagnosed illness that we're not even accounting for. Um, as you can see, my questions have no boundaries in terms of, it. I don't say this is what a pharmacist does or this is what a physician does or what a, a nurse does in terms of asking questions. Questions are questions and we should follow them and make sure we have on our team people with the expertise that we don't have. You know, um, I've just developed a, a new team for this study we're doing on HIV and COVID. And I'm so delighted that my co-investigator uh, said yes and she has skills I don't have, which is terrific. You know, it, it'll make for a far better study. Um, so the questions and you're asking it, you know, to look into the future, I, I think, be flexible. I caring for patients hasn't changed, mm. except I do remember in one place, not in the United States, uh, where someone was able to smoke some marijuana with someone who was dying, who then, you know, not died right that moment, but you know, in the days that came, did. I mean, being being open to doing things in different ways, um, being open to learning from other countries. You know why is it that there have been fewer cases in certain countries than others? What does that tell us? You know, there's so much that's happening. What are we going to learn in terms of space? We've got people going out into space. Sounds absolutely terrific. Not for me, mind you. I like it here on earth. But, you know, what sort of sequelae are there going to be for those people who have gone? Uh, What does it mean in terms of prevention? You know, uh, do they all need to be vaccinated so they don't bring some disease, some communicable disease to an other planet? You know, when we get we're getting we're on Mars so that's a planet
0: you know
2: they're just there there's so many interesting things that are happening in the world um, I think for the PhD students just being curious about things how is it that certain things happen you know how is it you know you know it's a question I ask about politics very often uh, you may or may not want to go there I don't, except for myself. Um, but just being curious about things as to how it is they're, they're happening and what the implications are for healthcare for people.
0: Can I ask the very last question, Dr. Corliss? Yes. Does your big old brain ever rest?
2: No, <laughs> I
0: suspected not.
2: <laughs> no i you know i'm i'm curious about so many different things and a lot of i tried to gather around me some of the things so i'd have the vibrations from some of the things that i've done that are really related to end of life care and death and dying and caring for patients but i really am curious about a whole array of things and it's wonderful to be curious you know absolutely It keeps, you're always, you you don't have to go on to TV to be curious about something. You can just go out and take a walk or look around your own environment. Very good. Have the opportunity to talk with interesting people like this morning. There you go. Right. Anna, you want to wrap
1: us up here? Well, I am so grateful that you took this time. I know you have many things you're still doing, obviously, in many projects. Um, and I think, uh, I hope for our students, you have really sensed that this evolution uh, has We've grown in many ways. We still have a lot of ways to grow in others, but I think for the students to know that this is still a work in process. And I think that really what Dr. Corliss said about being curious, and when you're thinking about the future, um, the boundaries are, you know, there are no boundaries. And so you have this limitless area that you can step into. Um, So thank you very much. And we're so grateful for your time. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me. And thank you very much for doing this PhD. I think it's a really important thing to be doing. And I congratulate you on it. And I've been very honored to be part of this.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
2: I'd like
0: to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.